Good morning. Please open your Bibles with me to the book of James. We'll be in chapter 5, verses 13 through 20, as we finish out the letter this morning. James writes to us, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death, and will cover a multitude of sins. Well, this is the word of the Lord this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for our time together that we are able to come together, open up your word, and to learn from you. We pray that this morning that's exactly what we would do. We would learn about you. We would learn what you desire of us, how you want us to live, how you want us to think about you, how you want us to praise you, God. I pray that your spirit would be active this morning, that it would convict people of sin, that it would encourage them, that it would reprove them, whatever you see fit, Lord. I pray that you would do for your glory. Amen. Well, this morning in this passage, we'll have three points. The first one will come to us in verse 13, the second in verses 14 through 18, and then the last one in 19 and 20. The main focus of our text will be on verses 14 through 18. That's where the main point of the passage is, and so that's where we'll spend most of our time as well. So just know when we get to point number two, we're going to hang out there for a minute. Okay. Well, first in verse 13, we see a call to wholehearted devotion. A call to wholehearted devotion. Our passage starts out and it asks, is anyone among you suffering? Well, we can stop right there and answer yes. I can look out today. And I can see people who I know are suffering. I also see people who, maybe not too long ago, I know you were suffering in one way or another. And for those of us that remain, it's most likely that we will suffer in the future. So, is anyone among us suffering? The answer is yes. Well, what does the Bible tell us to do in these times of trouble? Look in verse 13. James says, let him pray. So anytime a Christian is met with suffering, the Bible commands their initial response should be to turn to the Lord in prayer. Well, the question then becomes, what should I be praying for? Well, the popular prosperity gospel will tell you that you should pray for your health and your wealth to be restored and that all trials would immediately vanish 
and that there'd only be peace and happiness. Well, certainly it's not wrong to pray for deliverance from a trial, but I don't think this is what the Bible overall teaches. Turn with me back to chapter 1 in James and look at verse 2 and 4, how James opens this letter. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you would be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We'll flip back over to chapter 5 and look at verse 11, which Trey preached on last week. It speaks of suffering in the pro- with the prophets, and it says, We consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Or you could even go outside of the letter of James to plenty of places, but one would just be Paul in Romans 5, where he says, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So often... I fear that we're too quick to pray for immediate deliverance. Because let's just be honest about it. Most of our trials don't disappear overnight. Instead, we should remember that the Bible over and over again shows us that sufferings are brought about by God for the purpose of growing the believer in holiness and leading them to a deeper trust in God. So we need to seek to have a divine perspective on our suffering. We need to pray that God would allow us to look outside of the immediate context and see things in light of the big picture of how He's working to sanctify us. We need to see that God God is using the hardship as a means of growing us to love Him and depend on Him further. So are any among you suffering You should pray, and you should pray that God would lead you to a further dependence on him. Then look in verse 13. The next question James asks, is anyone cheerful? Well, once again, we could stop right there and answer yes. There's many of us in this room that are cheerful. Whatever the circumstance may be, whether God's been growing you in your understanding of Scripture, or he's blessed you with a new child, or whatever the blessing may be, there's plenty of us here who have reason to rejoice. Well, what are you to do in times of cheerfulness? Look again. James says to sing praise. And he means to sing praises to God. We're to acknowledge that whatever blessing we are experiencing is not because we've worked to bring it about ourselves or because we deserve it, but because it is the grace of God being active in our life and that he has chosen to bless us at this time and in this way. Therefore, we don't boast in ourselves, but we boast in the goodness and love of God. We sing praises to him. Our hearts and souls should lift up their voices to proclaim his grace. Well, brothers and sisters, if I fear that we're too quick to pray for deliverance from sufferings, I also fear that many of us are too quick to overlook our many reasons to be cheerful. 
It's a terrible thing to see a Christian who's continually sad and says they have no reason to rejoice. I just want to open the Scriptures with them and turn them to Ephesians and say, have you forgotten that at one time you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but, and you were a child of wrath, but God was rich in mercy and love, and He made you alive. So it's by grace you've been saved. Have you forgotten the grace that God has shown you? There will certainly be seasons of suffering and depression. But as a Christian, there's never a time when you're without hope. And so there's always a reason to be cheerful. There's always a reason to sing praises to God. So this morning, God's Word calls you to a wholehearted devotion. Whether it's in happiness or sadness, in suffering or in cheerfulness, your heart should always be directed towards praising God for His love and grace which He has shown you. Point number two, looking at verses 14 through 18. We're met with a call to fervent prayer. Well, there's no denying it. Prayer is one of those topics that seems to divide and cause a lot of confusion amongst many Christians. And if that's the case, then this particular passage does so even more. There's so many confusing questions that this passage seems to raise. Can only elders pray over the sick person? And what's going on with the anointing oil? Does it have some kind of special healing power? And if so, where are we hiding it? What exactly is this prayer of faith? Is it a certain prayer that if I pray it, it always will have healing power? I mean, the text tells us it will. I'm sorry, I got lost. It says it will save the one who is sick. What about confessing sin so that we'll be physically healed? Doesn't that seem to imply that illnesses are a direct result of unrepentant sin? But that if you do repent, the illness will automatically go away? There's a lot of difficult questions here before us. And in the history of the church, there's been two main camps which have emerged in trying to answer these questions. The first one is the extreme charismatic healing movement. And the other camp says, we're not sure. Seriously, you can go and read all the commentaries you want, and they give very political answers. They say, here's all of the possible explanations. And then they leave it at that. Well, if you ask me, I tend to fall into camp number two. I can't answer every difficult question in this passage. But I do want us to see this morning that although this is a very muddy portion of Scripture, that there are many things in it which are unmistakably clear. It's very clear in this passage that Christians are to pray and that they're to do so expectantly. Seven times in these verses, the word pray or prayer is used. And so it's obvious that regardless of whatever else may be going on, 
James is stressing the importance and necessity of prayer in the life of all believers. In verse 14, it's also very clear that the elders are to pray and care for those under their watch. And at this time, I want to address the elders of our church or any men in this room who aspire to one day be an elder. You must remember what the Word of God has called you to. Surely it's to preach the Word and be faithful stewards of that Word, but it's also to be a shepherd. God has called you to faithfully watch over and care for the souls in your flock. And so this means that you must be praying for them. Christ, the great shepherd, knows each and every one of those that belong to him, and you must seek to do the same. You must know the individual members of your church. You must strive to know their weaknesses and their strengths, the sins that they're prone to, their fears and their doubts. You must seek to know them personally so that you know how to care for them specifically. And this also means that you must be laboring for their souls. So often the idea of an elder is an old man sitting in his office just waiting for Sunday to come so he can preach a sermon. But the truth is, is to be an elder is to daily work and labor to benefit others. The greatest elder in the church is the one who is the most humble servant. And I also want you to know that you must be doing everything in the name of the Lord. We see in verse 14 that whatever the elders are praying for and whatever's happening with the anointing oil, that it is to be done in the name of the Lord. So it's not the elder that saves and it's not the oil that saves, it's the Lord. So if you are an elder or aspire to be one, do not look to your own abilities and your own power to heal and to save, but instead trust only on the power of the Lord. Though verse 14 may be unclear in some aspects, it is very clear that the elders are to work and pray for those under their watch. In verses 15 and 16, we're met with some more confusing statements. That the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and that if you confess your sins, you will be healed. Like I said, this seems to imply that physical sickness is a direct result of a particular sin, and that repentance leads to restored health. But imagine going to someone with congestive heart failure or with cancer and telling them that they're terminally ill because of their hard-hearted unwillingness to repent. Good luck with that. Obviously, that's not what this passage is teaching. It's very clear to see that this verse is teaching that believers are to be praying for one another and joining together in spiritual matters. When God first made Adam, he saw it was not good for him to be alone. And I believe it's the same for Christians today. God knows it is not good for Christians to be alone. So he's given the blessing 
of the local church. He's given the blessing of believers being in communion with one another. If you're left to yourself, the isolated Christian will quickly become discouraged. They'll become spiritually weak. They could become very susceptible to sin. They have no one to keep them accountable. They have no one to reprove them or to spur them on. They have no one to confess their sins to so that that brother or sister may go to the Lord in prayer on their behalf. It's a dangerous thing to be a Christian and to be a Christian who's alone. That's why God's giving the blessing of community. He intends for the local church to be full of people in relationship to one another, praying for one another. So it may be unclear how confessing sin can bring physical healing, but it's very clear that God desires for believers to truly love one another by partnering to work towards sanctification and holiness and by praying together. Among all of the muddy things in this passage, James has made it overwhelmingly clear that all Christians must be praying. Elders must pray. Individual Christians must pray. And congregations must be praying. And at the end of verse 16, we're told why such a great emphasis is placed on prayer. Look with me. It says, Because the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Well, if you're not yet convinced of the importance and power of prayer, James now gives us an example in verses 17 and 18 of a man who experienced great power in his own prayer life, the prophet Elijah. And I'm sure most of you just thought, well, yeah, that's Elijah, not me. Of course, he was a prophet. Of course he had a great prayer life. But that doesn't mean I can too. And if that was your first thought, then no, you're not alone. James has already anticipated you to say this. It's like he said, I knew you were going to say that. And so the first thing I'm going to tell you about Elijah is that he was a man with a nature like ours. Though he was a prophet, he still fell short of the glory of God. Though he was a righteous man, he was still a sinner. He was a man with a nature like ours. James then tells us that he prayed fervently, which means that his prayers were heartfelt and they were passionate. And what an amazing thing for a prayer life to be described that way. If I was only given one word to describe my own prayer life, I'm not sure fervent would make the top ten. And so I ask you, if you were only given one word to describe your prayer life this morning, what would it be? Would you be able to say fervent and passionate? Or would you have to say cold-hearted, weak, absent? It may be helpful to spend time thinking about this question and coming to an answer because the way you answer this question will reveal much about how you view God. Is he a God who hears and lovingly cares for his children? 
then you will pray expectantly. You'll pray fervently. You'll pray passionately. Or is He a God who's indifferent to the needs of His people and has no time to hear them? Then you may have to describe your prayer life as unexpected. Well, Elijah prayed fervently because he knew with certainty that God is one who hears and responds to prayer. Verse 17 and 18, we see the content of his prayer. Look with me. It says, He prayed that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Well, first we need to understand, Elijah's not just randomly praying for weather weather patterns. It's not that he didn't like rain, and now he kind of misses it, so he wants it back again. No, we have to understand it in context. And to do that, we would need to turn to 1 Kings 16 through 18. I'll just help summarize it for you. This is when King Ahab began to reign over Israel. And the word tells us that he did more to provoke the Lord to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. This is because Ahab began to worship Baal and led all of the nation into idolatry. Now, Baal was believed to be the god of rain and fertile land. So Elijah praying for it not to rain is him praying for people to realize that Baal has no true power. He's not a real god. He's simply an idol. He's praying that when the people would see this, that they would then turn away from Baal and turn back to the true god. He's praying that people would praise the true god of Israel and give him glory. That's in chapter 16. Then in 1 Kings 17, Elijah prays for a woman's son to be brought back to life. And upon bringing him back to life, the woman says, now I know that you serve the true God. She sees that Baal could not raise her son, but that the God of Elijah did. She gives glory and praise to the true God of Israel. Then in chapter 18, we have the epic showdown between the prophets of Baal and Elijah where they make an altar, and whichever God answers by fire is the true God. Well, the prophets of Baal all day shout and shout, and their God never hears, and he never answers. Then Elijah prays, Answer me, so that the people may know you are God. And God answers. Then if it were not already clear enough who the true God is, Elijah prays that though it has not rained for three and a half years, that it would now rain again. And what happens? James 5.18 tells us that the earth, the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. The people have been serving a God who could not answer and could not make it rain, but the God of Elijah did. So in all of these instances, Elijah's prayers were directed towards the glory of God being revealed and for the people to see that glory and turn from their sin and praise God. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours who had a supernatural ministry. And it's because every step of the way, he prayed fervently that the will of God would be done and that the glory of God would be revealed. Friends, this should be the pattern of our prayers as well. 
if we pray this way, not for things we want, but for the will of God to be done, for His glory to be revealed, we would see that much more of our prayers would be answered. And then knowing that God is pleased to hear and answer our prayers, we would pray more fervently. We would pray more expectantly. Some of you may still think, well, how can I even know that God will hear me? How can I go boldly and ask for these things in prayer? It's because we know that Christ is fervently interceding for us before the Father. We know that God hears our prayers because we're confident that we have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God. And he's not a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. So how can I have a fervent prayer life? How can I boldly go before God and make my needs known? Because I have Christ. Christ is the confidence of the believer in prayer. As I said, verses 14 through 18, James clearly gives a call for all believers to be praying and to do so expectantly and to do so praying that the glory of God would go forward. That may not describe your prayer life. You may be sitting here saying, that sounds great, but I don't even know where to start. I don't even know what step to take. Well, just very practically, friends, we have a thing called First Wednesday Night Prayer Service. And I invite you to that, not because Jeff is interested in our numbers going up or if we make it to that bigger classroom or not. I don't invite you to it for those purposes. I invite you to it because we want to help facilitate you being obedient to the Word. Scripture has clearly called us to do this. And the prayer meeting is a very practical way to join with believers for the elders to pray, the congregation to pray, that the glory of God would be made known. Amen. So please join us on those days. Lastly, in verses 19 through 20, we come to point number three. And we see a call to loving watchfulness. A call to loving watchfulness. James has spent his entire letter describing what the life of a Christian walking in the truth should look like. To walk in the truth means that you should endure trials with a divine perspective. It means you should not only be a hearer of the word, but a doer. It means you should be on guard against the sin of partiality. It means that you should love all as Christ has loved. It means that you should not be worldly. It means that you should be patient, and it means that you should be praying fervently. James' letter is a template of how the Christian life should be lived. And so to live in a way contrary to these things described would be to wander from the truth. And James warns us that there's a very real possibility that those who profess Christ will wander from the truth. And it's no minor thing to do so. Look in verse 20. 
wandering will save his soul from death. It's not a minor thing to wander from the truth of Scripture. It's very dangerous. And so first, we must keep watch over our own souls. We must daily be striving to grow in holiness. We must daily be turning from sin. We must daily be praying that God would give us more grace to walk in step with the Spirit. We must keep watch over ourselves so that we may then keep watch over others in this room today. We must see that it's a biblical mandate for us to care for one another's souls. That's a very big responsibility. As members of a local body, you are accountable to God for each other's souls, from keeping each other from sin. I know we live in a time where to love someone is to let them go their own way and do whatever they want and never say a word opposing it. But this is not the love of the Bible. The love of the Bible says whenever you see that brother taking the first step off of the path of truth, you take him by the arm and you say, I know this is what you want. I know you think this sin's going to make you happy, but it is not in line with the truth of Scripture. Brother, come back. If I were about to walk off a cliff and all of you wanted to love me and not say a word, that's not love at all, friends. That's hate. You had the opportunity to keep me from danger, yet you kept quiet so you could keep the peace. That's not the love of the Bible. When we see our brothers and sisters wandering, we must not keep quiet Keep quiet is to make enemies with them and enemies with God. The loving thing to do is to labor for their souls. And that word labor is why we don't see this so often in churches. It's because it will cost a lot. It will cost your time. It will cost your own self-interest. It may cost your pride. But friends, this is what we're called to. This is the great privilege that God has given us. That I could have a benefit on your soul and you could have a benefit on mine. And over the years, we could keep one another accountable and grow in righteousness. This is a huge blessing that God's given us. But we must work for it as well. Well, if all you ever do is work, you'll eventually get tired. Say, like, I'm tired of caring for their souls. Why can't they just take care of themselves? You'll get tired of all of this labor. So what is the motivation? What keeps you going? What's the foundation of why you would even do this? It's because we must remember that this is how Christ loved us. Were you not wondering... Had you not been led astray in sin? Were you not walking straight towards death? But Christ pulled you back because of His great love with which He loved you. He died for your sins. It's because of God's love sending Christ for us that we can then love others. Finishing out this letter of James, we are called 
to wholehearted devotion. We are called to fervent prayer. And we're called to loving watchfulness. Well, why do we praise God in all aspects of life? Why do we praise Him in both suffering and rejoicing? It's because we're no longer dead in sins, but we're made alive. And we have every reason to rejoice. Why do we pray fervently and expectantly? It's because our confidence is in Christ. And why do we labor for others? It's because this is how Christ first loved us. In all things, Christ is the center of the Christian's life. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. That we're not left to ourselves to figure out how to live a life pleasing to you, but that you have clearly given us instruction of how to worship you. God, I pray that as we leave here today, Lord, that we would be a people who want to see your glory. We want to make your name great. God, that in all aspects of life, we truly would seek to praise you and trust you. God, that we truly would pray more expectantly because we have a true understanding of Christ interceding for us and knowing that you're pleased to hear your children's needs. God, I pray we'd also leave here with a passion for caring for one another, that we would intentionally seek to build those relationships, to confess our sins to one another so that we may be held accountable. God, I pray that we would help one another in our walk in our holiness, and that you would receive all the glory. Amen.